I'd like to begin our, well, first of all, I should probably say that the, uh, the title for this uh, thought and this meditation, this sermon, call it whatever you would like, is uh, Keeping the Barn Clean. Now, I don't know how many of you guys have a, an agricultural background. In fact, why don't, I, why don't I find out? How many of you have lived on a farm? One, two, three... Not nearly as many as I... Mm, muscle male, okay. Uh, okay, three or four. Okay, that's, that's more than I thought. Or no, less than I thought, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> All right. But uh, when I was... Uh, being, I was raised in the mountains of North Carolina, so I uh, was not raised near the animals as much as you might think. It might have been the case. Of course, in some places in North Carolina and other places in the Smokies, there have been a lot of agriculture stuff going on. But then when I went to Argentina to live for many years, uh, there was a lot of uh, agricultural life there. In fact, uh, I think, if I'm not mistaken, there was a once a time when for every Argentine, there were four head of cattle. You know, that's a pretty big Proportion when you have four times as many animals in just one species of the cattle as you have people. Of course, on the other hand, Argentina basically took on the chore of, of, of feeding the world with that kind of, a, of an industry. But anyway, so I'm not from a farming country or anything like that, but I'm glad to be able to talk this morning about a clean barn, as if I knew a lot about a clean barn. Okay. I want to begin by having all of you... Uh, Work with me here for just a minute because we're going to be looking at Proverbs. Uh, if you want to get your Bible out and turn the first, the Proverbs chapter one, and just sort of have it there when I finish this little segue leading into that, uh, then you'll have your Bibles all ready. So uh, here's what I would like for you to do. You go turn up Proverbs one. We're going to look just for a moment at chapter one, and then we're going to jump to chapter 14. So you can just sort of have your finger there, however you want to do that. I would like to uh, get a little bit of interaction from, from you guys as we get started. After the morning time together, one of the ladies said, you know, I, know, I, I think you're a teacher, you're not a preacher. I, she didn't say the last part, but that was sort of assumed that that was the case. I said, yeah, I suppose so. I started before I ever left college. I was teaching already. So it's just sort of in my blood by this point. So if this comes out as a, as a, as a teach, preach kind of a thing, you know, you'll know exactly what's happening here. So I want to begin with some interaction uh, that you um, could have with me. I want to um, read a couple little, what are called or what are contemporary proverbs, and I want you to respond, and so let's have some feedback, okay? So you can talk, think of talking to me and think of talking to each other as well. How many of you have heard of a guy by the name of Wayne Gretzky? Oh, all right, good. Some of you then perhaps have heard this expression. He is supported, supposedly, uh, has supposedly said the following. We miss 100% of the shots we never take. Now, tell me what, tell me what you think Gretzky meant by that. Remember, he was a hockey player uh, for one of the Canadian teams, or more than one, I'm not sure how that went, but we miss 100% of the shots we don't take. Hmm? Take a chance? Okay, now you, you see what has happened? She took this and she said, now he was really making a positive statement. Take a chance, okay? Anything else you think you might have been saying? All right. So you miss one. You still don't stop, stop taking your shots. Now, you see what has happened in, in just these two little interchanges? The proverb is sort of like a catalyst to get us thinking. And we go beyond the words of the parable to get to the heart of what the parable is trying to, to take us. That's just one of the characteristics of parables. 
They do that. That's the nature of them, and we need to take them for that, that purpose. If you just stop with the parable by itself, you really haven't gotten all to, to where we want to go. Listen to this one. This is uh, written by somebody else, a fellow by the name of André Guidet, and he says this. One doesn't discover new lands without consenting to lose sight of the shore for a very long time. One doesn't discover new lands without consenting to lose sight of the shore for a long time. <laughs> what? Take the chance anyway. You may, your last name might be Columbus, right? <laughs> when would you guys ever say that to somebody? Not to take the chance. We say that. But when would you read the parable to them? Can you think of um, a contemporary way of saying that proverb? Get out of your comfort zone. That would be one. How about no risk, no gain? More or less, that would capture the idea. The point is, you can't go from point A to point B by sitting on your caboose all day. You have to get up and move. And even from point A to point B, you may have to be in traverse, strange country, but you do it. Okay. All right. You remember Jim Elliott? He was a missionary who went to Ecuador and along with some of his colleagues was killed by, the, by some Alca Indians there. Tragic, tragic story, but a lot of sequel to that. Anyway, he wrote the following. Probably most of you will have heard this. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You heard that one before, probably? That one probably doesn't need an awful lot of elaboration, knowing where it came from and the context, you know. What do we lose by following Jesus? Right? Nothing really. In the grand scheme of things, Nothing. Let me read this one, though, for you. This one I'd like to get your feedback on. This one may be a strange one. This was written by a, uh, a fella who was a um, French playwright. I don't know that he was a Christian, but he was a student of history, well, a student of human life in his own way. He said this, Jo Cotou was his name. If it has to choose who is to be crucified, the crowd will always save Barabbas. Let me read it again. If it has to choose who is to be crucified, the crowd will always save Barabbas. What does he mean? To whom would you say that? Yeah. 
Hmm? Following the crowd? Let me uh, change the express. Yeah. Pardon me? Darkness will get the call over light. When you do the right thing, don't count on public support. You may get it, but most likely you won't. Because the right thing is not necessarily what has gotten humanity to where it is. Most likely, if you do the right thing, you better figure on being the victim. But, do you still do the right thing? Yeah. We never heard what happened to Barabbas after he got freed. But we do know what happened to Jesus after he didn't get freed. That says something about where longevity lasts, where longevity exists. Anyway, those are proverbs. Those are, those are some contemporary proverbs. And when you're dealing with proverbs, basically what you want to do is, is to try to figure out where they're heading and then realize the proverb is more than just a, a catchy sentence. It's meant to provoke us to think and to analyze and to apply what should be the gist of that proverb to our daily life. It requires a little bit of investigation. Now, with that having been said, let us look here at Proverbs chapter 1. And I would like someone to read. I think I have it here. There we go. Uh, read the first seven verses of chapter one of Proverbs, but I would like someone who has a good, strong voice. Okay. All right, we got to take her here. Let's find out how strong this voice is. Okay, here we go. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the naive, to the youth, knowledge, and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. To understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. All right. Did you catch that the, the, the Proverbs are, are, are sort of part of a mental process. They're input that will produce if certain conditions are met. And some of those conditions are laid out in these several verses. For an example, just look at the way, just look at the way the last sentence, verse 7, is stated. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. If you want knowledge, something else has to come before it, which is another way of saying that you have to have some basis for that knowledge to actually happen. When you're looking at Proverbs, there are certain situations and conditions and, and so forth that have to take, either happen or be in place for, to, really, for, to really work for, for us. So the Proverbs will require us to, to think, will require us to analyze. And one of the things that I didn't mention in the first service, but I'll mention right now, is the, the Proverbs periodically, and you'll find them when we're looking through here, they use what are called if-then statements. If this, then that. 
Now, that can go either negative. In other words, if you have this, the bad thing's going to happen. Or if you have this, the good thing's going to happen. So it can go either way. But the point is, if you don't follow the fact that you have to have the if part for the second part to make sense. And the second part of the proverb will flow out of that whatever the if says. Then you have a, a complete salad. But otherwise, you just sort of had this isolated little statement. So you have to analyze, you have to analyze carefully, and you have to listen or read how the, how the proverb is structured. Because you could have an if something, and then the author could go this direction, or that direction, or that direction, or that direction, but he chose this one. And that's the one we would stick with. Okay, so just be careful. You have to use some analysis and, and this type of thing. Then there's one other thing I want to mention before we turn to the two Proverbs that I want us to really focus on this morning. And that is, I recently ran across a little article uh, that said uh, something like, well, I'll, I'll read the title here so I don't misstate, my, misstate myself. Why personal devotions are not enough. And you're saying, what does that have to do with Proverbs? Well, you'll see in a second. Why personal devotions are not enough. Now, I didn't know which way the author was going to go with this particular article. The, the, the author went this direction. When you have your devotional time at home, and you get it, and maybe you have a, a pretty good habit of doing your own personal devotions, it may almost end up that that becomes the source of your nourishment, your spiritual nourishment, to the point where it almost becomes God and I together. We're going to make it. Well, his, his point was personal devotions are not enough because you also need the input, according to this fellow, from somebody who might know the scriptures better than you do. Now, for those of us who are in education, that makes a lot of sense. Obviously, if you didn't think that you could help a student, you wouldn't even be doing something. In this particular case, the person would say, have your personal devotions, but have the input also coming from maybe a pastor, or a teacher, or somebody else, but not just yourself. I want to take his title, though, in even a little bit different tact. Personal devotions are not enough. They need to be done in a group. You heard the expression, iron sharpens iron. As much as possible, do your devotional life. But then I know this church has its little groups, and I, do, and I know they do that, and I'm glad for that. But have the input of the group to sort of keep things on the good keel, even when you're doing the study of Proverbs. So those are just a few little odds and ends to get started. But now I'd like for us to turn to Proverbs chapter 14. Okay, Proverbs chapter 14. Get my glasses out here. Proverbs chapter 14 uh, is one of uh, a number of chapters of Proverbs, uh, of uh, chapters and verses in, in this whole thing. You know how many Proverbs Solomon wrote? Anyone know? You ever heard? There's one spot. I think it's in Kings. I have it here in my paper. I'm not going to take time to look at it for now. But it refers to Solomon. He wrote 3,000 Proverbs. That's a lot. Now, he also, on top of that, wrote 1,005 songs. I don't know if he was looking for relief from all of those many, 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 many wives and concubines he had. I don't know. But nonetheless, he wrote Proverbs and he wrote a lot of music. And so these are just several of them. We're going to look at two. One of them in, in chapter 14 is verse 4. And the other one is going to be verse 10. 
So let's look at them in that order. All right. Verse four. It should read something like this, depending upon the, the translation you have. Where there are no oxen, the manger or the barn is empty. But from the strength of an ox comes abundant harvest. How many of you uh, ever had a farm where you used animals, used animals to do what ox do on a farm? Today, instead of using an ox, what do we use? A tractor? This was written 3,000 years before this. No. They didn't have mechanized stuff. What were some of the things you would guess a farmer back then would use an ox for? Hmm? Okay. Pardon me? Threshing. Do you remember the story of Samson where at the time of his, after he had lost his eyesight, they hooked him up to a grinding wheel? And he would just walk around like this, grinding the grain, to make it ready to become eventually flour and bread, etc., etc. Well, in many cases, when they didn't have someone like Samson, on the end of that long, long rod would be an ox just walking around, threshing. They would use an ox to pull water out of a well. They would use an ox to carry the goods to the market. They would use an ox to uh, help plow the field, to work in the field. An ox is a very useful animal. Now, if you had an ox, you could do all of those things. But what was the barn going to look like? And what was it going to smell like? Even more so. (laughs) Yeah, you got something out of the ox and something else also came out of the ox. (laughs) Exactly right. Now, if you want, uh, on the surface... On the surface, it appears as if the parable is saying, if you want a clean barn, don't have an ox. So it's almost making a choice as if to have an ox or not have an ox. But really, the parable goes deeper than that, doesn't it? Even the parable itself. Is this a question of having a clean barn or not a clean barn? No, it's a question of, do you want to eat? If you don't have an ox, you're going to have to do everything by your own muscle power. And your muscle power is nothing like the ox's muscle. You're not going to get nearly the crops out of your own muscle that you'll get out of using ox. You'll never get the crops to the market to sell. You'll never be able to pull up as much water So you have to decide, do I want to have food? Do I want to have sustenance? Do I want crops? Or am I prepared to give up all of those things simply because, oh, I prefer a clean barn. Well, if you want a clean barn, and that's really the end result, You might as well make it a a brand new storage area. 
I don't know what you're going to put in it because you're not going to have any crops to put in there. But nonetheless, you can have that if you want it. It's, a, it's, a, it's an example of how these proverbs, how these proverbs are, are set up. We have contemporary ways to express more or less the same thing. You can't have your cake and eat it too. Everything has its price. Oh, you want a clean desk 24-7. Fine. Cover it with a sheet. Never take the sheet off. Of course, then why bother having a desk? There are no free lunches. Everything has its price. You want to play golf? Practice. Think of Jesus. This is an example of how some of these parables tie into Jesus. He had to have a goal out there towards which he was striving. And getting there, he would have to put up, if I can say it very, if I can say it properly, he had to put up with a bunch of garbage to get where he got. Going through that final 24 hours, he didn't do it because he liked dirt. It's like the farmer doesn't like the dirty barn. But he puts up with it because of what is on the other side. The dirt of the trial of the brutality of the crucifixion was the price to get what was really needed the salvation of people it wasn't tidy it wasn't neat but it accomplished what it needed to accomplish and sometimes we have to make that kind of choice in our life I don't know what it's going to be in your life but I do know that it can happen it can very very easily happen Let's turn now over to verse 10. This may take just a little bit longer time here for us. 14, chapter 14, verse 10. Hopefully yours is going to read something like this. Each heart knows its own bitterness. And no one else can share its joy. Each heart knows its own bitterness and no one else can share its joy. Now, I I need to admit that this is one of those proverbs that is very, very sensitive to me. It may not be for other people, and I recognize that, but it happens to be for me. Let's insert, along with bitterness, the word sorrow. Because bitterness usually brings sorrow with it. Is there anyone in this room who has not experienced sorrow? I didn't expect any hand to be raised. We all know what sorrow is. And sometimes that sorrow gets to the level of bitterness. We don't like either of those, but that's life. It happens. Does the name Hannah ring a bell in the book of First Samuel, if I recall correctly? You remember her story? She was the wife of a fellow named Elkanah. But she wasn't the only wife he had. He had another wife. I think her name was Penina, something like that. However you pronounce it, I'm going to say Penina. The husband's name was Elkanah. Hannah, Penina. All of them in an A-H, if that helps to remember. 
But Hannah didn't have, what, any children? But Penina had a bunch. How was the relationship between Hannah and Penina? However, it was not nice, not pretty. Penina mocked Hannah, made fun of her. Oh, you don't even have enough ba-ba-ba to have kids. I am going to have descendants who are going to carry on my name. You, you don't have anybody to carry on your name. This went on year after year after year. She didn't have any children. The husband, Elkanah, every year would take Hannah and Penina to Shiloh, which is where the Jewish people had their sacrifices. It was sort of like, at that particular point, it was sort of functioning like the temple or the tabernacle. It was a tent. It was a place of, of centered sacrifices for the Jewish people. So they would go there, and they would offer their sacrifices, and Elkanah, who was the husband, felt very, very bad for uh, Hannah. He knew what was going on, but he couldn't do anything about it. Uh, after all, she was, Benina, at least having children who were going to have Elkanah as a father. But when they got there for the place of sacrifices, Elkanah would always be sure that Hannah got a double portion of the meat. Of course, this didn't help Penina to feel any better, but it did show where Elkanah stood. He was on the side of Hannah. But it still didn't solve, it still didn't solve Hannah's sorrow. You remember the story. One day she was there and bitter, in agony. She had no children. She felt alone in the world, even though she was married to this guy, Elkanah. The bitterness and the sorrow is so deep that she can't even verbalize it. She can just move her mouth as if she were saying something. Have you ever been in that situation where if you started to talk, you would just come out cracked and you'd end up crying? But you can... And Eli... The prophet, what was his reaction? He thought that Hannah was what? Drunk. It's not bad enough for Hannah to know that she can't have children. But now for the quote, man of God to call her a drunk on top of that? the sorrow just gets deeper. It becomes bitterness. And it happens. That's life. I'm not going to ask any of you guys, it's not necessary, but you can think about it at least. How much bitterness do any of us carry around? How much sorrow do we carry around? And if you say, I have some, Well, join the human race. We have sorrow. We have bitterness. It just happens. Two ladies, two ladies were, went with their husbands out to dinner. They were sitting there at dinner, all of a sudden enjoying the time together, all of a sudden, the fella comes in, stands, looks as if he's just going to walk by the table, going to some other table. But when he gets to the table where the two ladies and their husbands are sitting, this fella reaches into his pocket, pulls out a revolver, shoots both of the men in the head, killing them instantly. And then he turns the gun on himself and shoots himself. You say, that can't happen. 
It does. What do we do with all of those drive-by shootings that, where someone just shoots somebody for the, quote, fun of it, or for the initiation into a club or whatever? The case of these two women, are they going to have sorrow? Are they going to have grief? May they experience bitterness? Of course. Did they ask for it? Did they do anything to deserve it? Nothing that nobody else does. So they have a shared common sorrow. How long it will last, I have no way of knowing. I can't imagine what it would be like. Fortunately, when my wife passed away, fortunately, when she passed away, all of my children were grown. Had children by that point. But in the case of these two women that I'm referring to, they didn't have that. One of them had two children, both in college. This is where the sorrow and the bitterness and so forth are going to change a little bit. She had two children in college. The lady, the survivor, the widow, came from a relatively wealthy family. She didn't have to worry about putting bread on the table. There was a good life insurance policy on the husband. Um, She had an extended family who were going to get involved. Sisters, brothers, aunts, uncles, blah, blah, blah. She was part of a group. So some of her sorrow was lessened because of circumstances beyond her control, but for which she was very grateful. The other lady, however, was not so fortunate. She had the sorrow of the death of her husband, but her husband did not have any kind of life insurance. The lady herself did not have any kind of an education that would allow her to get a high-paying job, let's say it like that. And furthermore, those five children that she had, they were all under the age of seven. And furthermore, two of those five had serious developmental problems. No help, no family, no money. Now, which one of those two ladies was going to experience probably even more sorrow than the other? Probably that poorer lady, she had less resources available. If you're just talking now about those factors, but they both had sorrow. That's life. And I'm not trying to say that's life to belittle it. It's just, it's just what's, what happens. There is sorrow. But are we prepared to recognize it in other people? There's where I want to go. What's your sensitivity level to people's sorrow? Because what I want to say is that until we have developed through the Lord's grace in our life, perhaps, or however, you want to, that's a whole other track, but until we have developed a sensitivity to the sorrow that other people have, it's going to be very, very difficult for us to have traction with them. Because they will think, and they may be right, that person is really trying to avoid the key issue. I need help now when I'm in sorrow. But where's it coming from? Developing a sensitivity for sorrow. We, we have to be there. We also have the other part of this verse. Joy. How does the verse say it? Someone read that verse again, out loud. Verse 10. 
No one else can share the joy. Their joy. Sorrow is very deep. And joy can be very deep also. How many of you have ever seen the Grand Canyon? I have not. So that's why I'm asking. I haven't seen it. Is it as beautiful as it is claimed to be? Or so-so? You have to be there? Do you notice the variety of reactions to the Grand Canyon that we're, we're experiencing here? What about, I've never been to this next place either, but have you ever been to the Painted Desert? Is it beautiful? Is it? Did it cause a sense of elation or joy just to see some of those things? Some people sense it and some people don't. I have a joy that I experience that not everyone will. It's when I sit down and I just need a little bit of relief from what I'm doing and I put in the earbuds, turn on the computer, go to YouTube and pull up a particular orchestra concerto, Rachmaninoff number two, piano concerto number two. And the pianist in this particular, there will be several of them, but the one I'm thinking of right now is a lady named Helene Grimald. It's all live and, the, and, the, and it's just gorgeous. You see the entire orchestra. She's there playing the thing. And, and the concert is about 35 minutes long. And I listen and I just start trembling. And I, I just feel the joy of the music that is filling my head. And sometimes I start to get a, a, a catch in my throat. And sometimes I think I'm just about ready to start crying from the joy of listening to this beautiful... And other people who say, Cass, what's wrong with you? <laughs> You're sick! <laughs> I said, blessed be the sickness. <laughs> no. But the point is, we can have joy from a variety of way, in a variety of ways and from a variety of things, but we have joy and we have sorrow. And both of them can come from a variety of things. But are they ends in themselves? They certainly shouldn't be. But I want to go to another step. They shouldn't be, if the joy and the sorrow is in the person sitting here, it shouldn't be then that we can just sort of shrug our hands and shoulders and wash our hands about their joy and about their sorrow and go our own way. There has to be some identification there for us to be able to, to dialogue with them, to live through their joy and live through their sorrow. Let me tell you a story and then we'll quit. A while ago, I got a call from a fellow whose name I'm going to invent at this particular point for the sake of the story. We're going to call the fellow Michael. All right. Michael wanted to see if I could join him for lunch. And I did. I'd known Michael now for quite a while. At that time, known him for quite a while. So we met. We sat down. I knew some of Michael's story because we had known each other for, for a bit. And so we sat down and we started to talk. And slowly but slowly we ate our food because we were spending more time talking than anything else. I asked him how things were going. And he started to tell me. He felt free enough to do that. And I was, I was glad. And uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't a very uh, pleasant situation for him. He had serious medical problems. He's had some heart surgery. He has a, uh, an ongoing serious case of diabetes. Uh, he's had some surgeries. He has he lost his job. The church where he was attending and where he was very active for quite a long time had uh, dissolved. 
um, so he had no work, no reason to think that he would get any work. Wherever he went, no, they didn't want a person of his age. And his wife had a 29-hour-a-week job, no benefits. He was getting a little bit of help from government subsidies or whatever. And I could tell as he was telling all of this that it was very painful for him. So I asked him, Michael, when you look in the mirror, you see your face. Are you looking at a person who is healthy or who is unhealthy? He said, wow. He wasn't sure how to answer the question. And I know why. Because he probably had mixed emotions about it. I said, Michael, let me suggest to you that when you look in the mirror, you see yourself as a healthy man, not a sick man. You see, what I wanted him to realize was his own self-perception was going to be a key to a lot of what was going to come later. I said, Michael, let me tell you about a conversation I had with a colleague of mine in Argentina. I was down there for a teaching scenario. He was a pastor of a church, a longtime friend of mine. And when Eduardo and I met, he was talking about the church. I said, I asked him how it was going and so forth. He said, uh, Vernon, I'm facing something I have never faced in my life. I said, what's, what's the deal? We are having so many of the men in our church who, because of the economic problems in Argentina, have found themselves without employment. There is no way for them to get a job. And it's one man after another, after another, after another, after another in our church with no work. Argentines are hard workers. But there's more to it than that. Those men had the same basic outlook on life that we here in the United States have. The men. Their self-perception revolves around their work. When men meet and they're getting acquainted one of the first things they ask each other, what do you do? It's not because they're trying to be mean. It's just the way men are in this particular culture. Well, what happens when the man can't say, I don't, I don't have anything, I, I don't do anything? One after another after another. And Eduardo told me, he said, I am now realizing, and he had been a Christian for a long time, he said, I am now realizing that this whole truth, that our identity and our worth comes from Jesus, not from what we do. And that is revolutionary for a man to deal with. Because even men who have something to do can end up making the to-do an idol. And unwittingly, they are then worshipping a false god. Michael got it. He knew what I was talking about. I said, Michael, where are you in the situation? I said, then, Michael, there's one other thing I would like to suggest to you. 
say this one comes from my own life. I told him about the time when I was relatively young. I was doing my master's work at Wheaton Graduate School. And a fellow by the name of Merle Tenney was the dean of the college or the, of, this, of the graduate program at that point. Scholar, tremendous man. I walked into his office and for some reason I felt that I could do this and, and I started telling him my woes, the problems I was going through. He listened, very patiently he listened, asked questions. And when I had finished with my song and dance, Dr. Tenney looked at me and he said simply this, Vernon, God does not carve rotten wood. Let that sink in. And I told Eduardo that and I told Michael that. Because sometimes the sensitivity that we can show by the comments that we make lets the other person know I have walked in your shoes. And when the other person knows that we have walked in their shoes and the sensitivity is obvious, suddenly you will have a depth of conversation and a depth of being able to help somebody that you won't have otherwise. Share their joys. Share their sorrows. Make it honest. And enjoy the consequences. Let's pray. Father God, you are so good and kind to us. And we recognize that frequently your goodness and your kindness are such that we don't even understand it to do to be that. But you cannot help but love us because you are love. And we want to experience that and we want to appreciate it and we want to relish it and we want to ask for it and we want to share it and allow us to be sensitive to others so we can share with them what we have learned and gained and received from you. Help us as we go through the remainder of this day. Help us to Enjoy your life and your presence. In Jesus' name, amen.